everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feeling. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of A Gut Feeling. And today we're talking about bloods, but we're going to talk about a different aspect of blood work that we haven't touched on before. And what we're going to discuss now is how can you use certain foods to actually manipulate or impact or improve blood markers? Now, this is something that I don't think enough people talk about. It's easier to find supplementation that can affect blood work. But to find foods and just foods, we're not talking about supplements and extracts, but actual foods and using that to optimize your blood markers, that's a little bit more challenging. And it's not as simple as saying, well, let's just follow it, you know, a keto diet or carnivore diet or whatever. We're talking about specific individual foods that have been shown in literature to have a specific impact on particular markers. So that's where we're going to go today. Just before we jump into it and start talking about particular foods and particular blood markers, I was going to make a joke about a message from my sponsors, but I've made that joke too many times. Um, <laughs> but we do want to talk about, I guess, some of the limitation in this space. And so while there are studies that you know we are going to talk about on particular foods, we want to acknowledge that this space is not heavily researched. Dave, do you want to, want to add something to that? Yeah, I just think it's important for people to understand that there's always limitations in research, okay? Like we talk about this all the time. Like obviously we look at research papers all the time, so it doesn't mean we don't look at them. Mm. There, there's, there's a few ways that we could look at this, okay? So one way is you can look at the food and you just basically say, okay, what compounds has this food, food got? Okay, so one way of looking at the research, so we're, we're, we're not dismissing this. It's not necessarily the angle that we're gonna look at it from within this podcast. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're just going like, based on the literature, this food has been shown to do this to particular blood markers and, and particular biomarkers. But another way of looking at it is you could take a particular food, okay, say it's got this particular compound, you could actually research that particular compound and the impact that it has on liver enzymes or even things like white blood cell count. And you're probably gonna find there's a whole heap of literature in terms of analyzing things from that perspective. Yeah, It has this compound. so. We want to make it clear that really in regards to, you know, all these different types of foods that probably have all these array of like, you know, different benefits within the body. Uh, It's just not necessarily the way that we're going to look at it from within this podcast. So an example of that, and I think this is important because if you were to look up, if you go to Google and you Google, you know, a blood marker and you say what foods help with hemoglobin, whatever it might be. 99% of what comes up is going to be what you've just said there, where they're saying mechanistically, it makes sense that this food might help with this marker because it has this nutrient in it. Uh, And so that stuff is valuable, but it's a bit speculative. And so we still use that. Like we still would say, well, you know, it it seems logical that this is going to happen, but we want to actually provide you guys with something which isn't as easy to find. You're not just going to jump on Google, look at a blog, and it's going to say, hey, these are the studies for these foods. We actually want to discuss what we've seen in the literature around specific foods. But the example I just wanted to quickly give is if you were to jump on Google and you look up, well, um, you know, what food will help with my hypothyroidism? I would imagine, I haven't tried this, but I imagine some sites are probably going to say something like Brazil nuts. And the idea behind that would be Brazil nuts contain selenium. And so the selenium can help with the conversion of T4 to T3. And, and then if you look at studies on selenium, you'll find some. I wouldn't say it's entirely the most convincing thing in the world, but you will find studies around selenium helping with conversion. And so that's where these people would then say, well, therefore, these this food, Brazil nuts, high in selenium, take, selenium, take Brazil nuts for your thyroid. And we're saying that's easy to do that. You know, we can easily look at what nutrient is needed for what and tell you what food has that nutrient in it. But that's not the angle we're going to go in this episode. No, and we're not we're not dismissing it. We're not dismissing it. But we're also saying that with research, sometimes what can happen is you can make that sort of conclusion. Yeah. They might actually do the research and actually show that it doesn't really have that response within the body. Once again, we're saying there's a good chance that it probably will. Yeah. But we're saying there's also a chance that it might not. You know, for example, I'm really big on like shellfish. 
uh, and I'm really big on things like prawns and shrimps. Okay, so we could make a conclusion here because actually like prawns and shrimp, like any type of like uh, uh, crustacean where they have like a red shell. Okay, so you could say like crabs and crayfish and lobster, prawns, shrimp. Well, they are actually very high in a particular uh, phytonutrient. It's called astaxanthin. Now, astaxanthin um, does actually help to, it helps aminophagy. So it actually helps to protect intestinal stem cells from metabolic stress damage. Now, we can say, well, astaxanthin is high in the prawns and the shrimp. Uh, and then you could actually look up astaxanthin and are you going to find research around astaxanthin and the positive impacts in the body? Mm. Yes, I mean, astaxanthin has actually been shown to decrease DNA damage biomarkers and even like acute phase proteins as well. And I'm pretty sure that was actually done in young, healthy females. So I can make, I, I can go, well, the prawns and the shrimp have the astaxanthin. So that's what the prawns and the shrimps are doing. Mm. It's not I'm, not, I'm not saying that that has directly been found with prawns and shrimp yep it's just a guess it's gonna work that way exactly okay so it's just an example of it okay but what, what I, I think it's just the first thing that we wanted to to say is that we're not dismissing it no and you know what dave i actually want to give another example and i know this isn't where we plan on going <laughs> but i think maybe this will help be helpful because based on what you've just said there there's a fallacy there that we're assuming that in fact those foods even have those nutrients so for example, lycopene. So lycopene is a nutrient, like if most people who've heard of lycopene will immediately think tomatoes. And lycopene has been found to help with things like what macular degeneration, even some cancers, like there's a number oh, anti of- anti-cancer properties, but also they're pretty amazing around the gallbladder. Okay? Yeah, so gallbladder, gallstones yeah. and gallbladder infections. And that's why you say like anyone who's got like uh, excessive bilirubin and might have some benefits around that. Yeah. Um, not sure about around, around things like Gilbert syndrome and so forth, but you know, yeah. lycopene's got depth huge benefits around the gallbladder. So the yeah. thing that could happen here then is someone someone knows that, you know, they're switched onto the literature, they see all these benefits of lycopene, they know tomatoes of lycopene, and then they say, okay, eat tomatoes because you've got macular degeneration issues or you've got cancer or whatever, gallbladder issues. But we know that in fact, a lot of tomatoes don't even contain lycopene anymore. It's simply the, the way that we grow stuff, the way that you know, the, the topsoil has been depleted. A lot of these nutrients are no longer found. You know, and, and the example I used before with Brazil nuts, like, again, if we look at the selenium content of Brazil nuts, it varies greatly, um, you know, so, so much that some Brazil nuts would have such minimal amounts, it's not going to have any effect. So then we start saying things, well, oh, you've got gallbladder issues, eat tomatoes. It's like, well, I understand the mechanism, but that food may even may not even have that thing in it that you think it has. Yeah. Well, so, don't, they, don't they say like hydroponic tomatoes? Have no lycopene. They have no lycopene, yeah, okay? So, uh, exactly. I, I think a lot of the time the lycopene can actually uh, apply to what they call like Liberty Gardens. And Liberty mm. Gardens is a concept that came out of like after like the Second World War where people just started growing all their own vegetables. Mm. Okay, so actually it'd be like growing tomatoes in your own backyard. The lycopene concentration is more li- I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. No, okay? but much but more. I believe it's actually meant to be higher. Okay, yeah. and, and we're talking about considerably higher. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's a, that's a great point, okay. And also like maybe, well, now we're bringing up all this stuff here, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think we're gonna cover this one another another time, okay. But it's also important to understand that you might actually have a particular food that's actually got these nutritional benefits, but sometimes maybe to do with like the process that the actual food goes mm. through. Uh, yeah, and, and this is in regards to things like mycotoxins. So it's not me sort of necessarily having a go at the particular type of food, um, but you know, something like aflatoxins or aflatoxin B1, which is actually you find in like tree nuts. Um, and I think you told me about the ratio of something like uh, aflatoxins being in like uh, walnuts. Okay, was it something like 90% of all walnuts? I think it was 90% of, yeah, one of these samples they looked at, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and if we're just talking about like impact to your, your biomarkers and your blood chemistry, like mycoto- uh, like aflatoxin B1 or mycotoxins, they were actually shown to like raise, uh, you know, ALT, AST, ALP, raise urea, raise creatinine levels, uh, lower red blood cell count, lower white blood cell count. So once again, it's not me having to go at things like, you know, walnuts and cashews and peanuts and Brazil nuts, which can be very high in aflatoxin B1 and even things like corn. It's not me having to go at that those particular types of foods. It's me saying that- Pistachios, have, I think they were really high as well. Weren't yeah, they? I think they were pretty high as well. But it's, 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 it's what I'm saying is, those foods contain the mycotoxin, mm. uh, uh, which obviously, you know, they, they, they grow a fungus. And in this instance, that fungus is aspergillus flavors. That's what it is. It produces the aflatoxin B1, 
but then the aflatoxin B1 has these, all these negative impacts on your internal biochemistry. So what do we say in that instance? We, well, we have to say, well, that food in that instance, if it's not mycotoxin free, it's actually having a negative impact on your liver enzymes and your red blood cell count, your white blood cell count, and even like your renal function. Hmm. I, think, I think we've opened a can of worms with this one. We have a little bit, haven't we? We didn't expect <laughs> to get down this path. So that's why we're avoiding that aspect. We actually just want to look at things that have, have had that specific food studied in the literature. So yeah different conversation but let's let's jump into that one so i don't i mean where do we even start okay maybe like a, a place to start because obviously we i think this is another factor as well okay uh, we are strong advocates and strong components of like animal proteins now i do want to say that uh you know literature around this can be reasonably weak in terms of like if we're talking i i think you were telling me about a particular research paper was it was it a research that was actually done on men? It was hemoglobin. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, so mention that one. So maybe, in fact, I don't know if this is where you wanted to go with it. It's probably not, but maybe one way we could talk about this, Dave, is if we imagine a blood panel and we imagine there's going to be your your full blood count. So there'll be like red blood cell markers, white blood cells, um, and then we're going to have like kidney markers, liver markers, usually on the next page, and then lipids and, and iron studies probably following that. Maybe we kind of almost work through that panel a little bit and talk about foods yeah. to some of those markers. So but, but also, also like maybe just bring up some of the misconceptions and fallacies and all that type of stuff as well. I think that's really important because yeah. one thing I'd say on the meat thing, because obviously we're huge advocates of like, uh, you know, bone marrow and bone broth and slow cooked meats and organ meats. Mm. Well, how much literature, you know, can you actually find like directly on slow cooked meats and yeah, bone exactly. marrow? And, and, and organ meats, okay? Well, most of the time you can say, you once again, you're making conclusions, yeah, okay? We're yeah. just going, well, organ meats have this, well, there's plenty of research on that particular uh, compound. Now, obviously you can find research that was done on rats and mice around, I think it was rats, yeah, where it was done on uh, anti-fatigue factor in, in regards to like liver, okay? Obviously like Western A Prize talk about that, okay? So there's some stuff you can find there, okay? But it's pretty, it's pretty limited. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that there's not going to be a lot of studies where they say, okay, here's people with low neutrophils, let's give them desiccated bone marrow, desiccated spleen and see what happens. Like we just don't have those studies. So I just want to say there's a limitation there as well. I mean, like I look, I have, uh, the only thing I could really find, yeah, okay, was, was in regards to like bone broth. And I wouldn't say it was like that it had a direct, they weren't showing like the direct impact that it was having on particular types of, uh, biomarkers or you know blood markers okay but they actually uh, did find that bone broth had these uh, anti-inflammatory benefits where it actually did decrease the symptoms of individuals that actually had ulcerated colitis now uh, obviously like that's an IBD condition uh, and we would generally say you know people with ulcerated colitis they've got like you know gastrointestinal fissures they've got compromisation to ISCs intestinal stem cells okay so obviously excessive bleeding within the gut but they're definitely going to have a loss of you know, things like goblet cells and uh, intestinal stem cells are going to be very compromised, yeah. So what they actually showed, okay, is that they actually uh, had uh, bovine or cows like femur. They cooked that for, slow cooked it for uh, you know, about eight hours, I think. Uh, and actually there's certain types of amino acids that can actually be in more abundance. There's higher amounts of it. And actually one of those is histidine and the other one was glycine. So they have actually shown that people with ulcerated colitis can actually have low levels of histidine and glycine. Now, where I, once again, I'm not saying this is directly the reason uh, that this is happening. Uh, you do need histidine and you do need glycine to actually help with uh, like matricines, like a small peptide like GHK. And obviously we know GHK is really good around helping with like uh, uh, progenitor cells and intestinal stem cells. So they actually found that the bone broth, because it had higher amounts, I can't remember the exact percentage either, okay, but there was a higher percentage of like histidine and glycine. I think they had the high percentage of those uh, particular amino acids. And they actually showed that it did lessen the symptoms of the uh, the ulcerated colitis. Now, whether that's actually having like a, a positive impact on things that are generally associated with ulcerated colitis, like an elevation in ESR, you know, uh, a lowering in things like, uh, maybe initially a, an elevation in the eosinophils, but then a lowering in the eosinophils. Uh, you would, once again, I could make the conclusion and say that it probably would be having a positive mm. impact on those mm. things. But also, I can't necessarily find that in the literature yeah. in the research. Yeah, so obviously there's limitations. And so the foods we're going to mention here, you know, these by no means are going to be the only foods that are going to help with blood, certain blood markers. But these are the ones that 
we do have the studies on. So if we did jump in, do you want to mention that? Did you want to mention that? Yeah. Yeah, I'll mention that. So we'll jump into hemoglobin. So in in context of what you were just saying, so there's one study at least in um, older individuals, older men who were uh, they were resistance training, so they were lifting weights uh, a few times a week. And they had basically everyone, they got all of them to follow a vegetarian diet. They cut out all meat. They did that for two weeks. So it was like the baseline diet. Uh, and then half of them continued to follow a vegetarian diet and half of them introduced beef into the diet. Now, it didn't specify. It was based on their body weight and, and like they basic protein intake and the body weight. Um, so it didn't specify exactly how much beef they introduced, but their protein intake was very low. Um, it was, uh, I forget the top of my head, but it was less than half of what we would normally recommend. So it was a very low protein intake, even for those eating beef. And in fact, I think the vegetarian group were actually consuming more protein or at least as much as the, the beef group. And yet what they found was a significant increase in hemoglobin in those who were uh, eating the beef. So on average, their, actually I've got it written here, on average, their hemoglobin went so if we would normally say for men, it should be above 145, their hemoglobin went from on average 140 to 156 in 12 weeks. Um, whereas the vegetarian group, there's there's hardly any change, 143 to 145. So there's not a lot of studies like this, but this was one good study um, where we could see that red meat had a, a direct impact on hemoglobin levels. And could we say like another limitation, once again, um, it could be is that a lot of the time there can be this sort of like favoritism towards checking the impact that foods have on like hemoglobin, red blood cell count, iron, uh, lipid markers, uh, maybe like just uh, CRP, like just obviously one of the inflammatory markers. Because actually that's what I would say is just a limitation because most of the time they're just checking mainly around these yeah. blood markers yeah. and it just gets a bit, little bit more limited around maybe things like homocysteine, uh, you know, like homocysteine or, you know, even like white blood cell, which you would think there should be a lot of literature around like, you know, the impact uh, with, when it comes to like white blood cells. Yeah. There, there seems to be this a little bit more favoritism towards certain types of blood markers. Like even, you know, uh, directly the impact of certain foods on liver enzymes can be a little bit limited as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that was one one for me with hemoglobin. There are like that was the main one I could find on hemoglobin. There's a number of studies where they've and even like systematic reviews and meta-analysis where they've looked at like iron status in adults who are vegetarian compared to meat eaters, and they have found significantly lower iron. Now, that in a lot of these studies, they're not looking at hemoglobin, but hemoglobin is obviously mostly made up of, of iron essentially. And so we would expect that there's iron deficiency. There's going to be low hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is probably the, the best like anemia indicator anyway. So there's that's probably telling us there's a link there. But again, it's not directly spelled out. Um, and then there are studies where they've had people following uh, a high soy diet and like their protein was largely coming from soy and they found lower levels of iron status in those people compared to meat eaters. So again, like it's not the, the most robust uh, studies, but you know, there's there's a number of studies that are showing a clear correlation with iron status and and some of these red cell markers. So that's an an obvious one, I suppose. But then there's there's other foods that have been shown to help with hemoglobin as well. Do you want to touch on some of those? Yeah, well, it's probably one of my favourites actually. So, um, uh, for people who don't know, obviously Jake definitely knows this. I'm a huge fan of like goats and sheep products, like huge fan. I know that you know. Uh, can be a little bit harder to get. I, I think it's becoming a little bit more prevalent. I don't know mm. from your experience, okay, but you definitely, uh, definitely goats and sheep products are coming more into the fore, I think anyway. Uh, it can be a little bit fiddly around things like, you know, goat's whey and, and sheep whey and, and obviously a lot more expensive. Mm. I think there's definitely like more companies that are actually branching out into that as well. But yeah, I'm a big fan of goat's products. Now, um, believe it or not, even I was a little bit surprised with this. There's good literature around like uh, things like goat's milk and goat's whey and sheep whey. Uh, they actually did have like iron deficient rats and they actually gave these rats. Once again, I know it's rat in my studies. You know, I'm just, once again, I'm not saying it's the be all and end all, okay? But yeah, uh, once again, it's a limitation of a lot of research. Uh, and this was actually, I'm pretty sure it's actually based on like whole goat's milk. So whole goat's milk actually had a, um, a bigger impact uh, from this perspective. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. 
Yeah, so but they actually showed that that um, actually um, that hemoglobin concentrations were increased. Now another thing, okay, with the goat's milk is that actually there's a thing called the the, the DMT one receptor. That was actually uh, upregulated in the small intestine. Now, what this is, is like an iron transporter, okay? And so it's basically required for like iron absorption and even like helping with the, like the process of things like red blood cells. So that actual receptor was actually increased in the small intestine through the consumption of like goat's milk. Um, so that's pretty significant. Uh, and also the, the, the stuff that I really love around like uh, goats and sheep products, and I'm pretty sure this was based on like uh, goats whey and, and sheep whey, is that they they showed that it significantly uh, significantly increased GSH levels. So that's glutathione levels. Uh, and not only, that was actually found in uh, the small intestine, it increased the levels. It even increased the levels in the lung tissue, increased the levels in the pancreas, the muscle, uh, even like they tested certain muscles, like the quadricep. Um, so that was on goats and sheep whey, but they also showed something similar with goat's milk. So actually goat's milk itself also significantly increased uh, glutathione uh, levels as well. And one of the factors behind this is that goats uh, and sheep products are really high in cysteine, which is an amino acid, it's a sulfur-based amino acid. And cysteine is actually one of the key building blocks that we need for glutathione. Uh, and so that's probably why the, the dominant reason to why it's actually increasing the glutathione levels. And look, uh, that's probably relevant to, to a lot of people because obviously like an indication of a glutathione deficiency would be someone having uh, elevation in GGT levels. We would generally say that if someone had really, really low GGT levels, there could be some complications around, uh, uh, you know, uh, like things like glutathione gene mutations, potentially like the GSS gene and glutathione synthetase and so forth. But um, my point is, no, I'm not saying that there's research to show that goat's milk, um, there might be, I, I, uh, um, you know, I haven't found it, goat's okay. whey and sheep whey actually lower GGT levels, but there is definitely a positive response uh, around glutathione levels. You would say like, you would say in theory, once again, it's just the hypothesis, you would say in theory they would have to have some positive response on something like the GGT levels. There are studies yeah. that have shown, and I, I've seen this in fermented goats um, dairy, where there was a reduction in inflammation in a number of different inflammatory markers. Now, obviously, you know, we're, we're extrapolating to suggest that that would help with GGT, but it may well, obviously, if glutathione is a, you know, antioxidant, if you're reducing inflammation, oxidative stress, it could certainly help there. But in that study, they actually hypothesized, so it was talking about anemia and, and iron status, and they suggested that actually using the fermented goat's dairy would have benefit when trying to replete iron stores because it would be reducing the inflammation. And obviously inflammation will have a, a pretty detrimental effect to iron repletion. So there's a number of studies there, both, well, I guess mostly animal studies, but there's mechanistic studies here as well, showing how the, the full fat goat's dairy or fermented goat's dairy would have a number of benefits. And, and also you can go down that sort of hypothesizing sort of like approach as well. Like one thing that I know, like some like, you know, like even like goat's kefir or, you know, goat's yogurt, okay, it's very high in a, a particular positive gram bacteria called Streptococcus thermophilus. I don't mm. know, like I, I, this research, I think it was a long time ago. I think we spoke about like ages ago. Wasn't there something where they um, gave people like uh, goat's kefir, goat's yogurt, it increased the Streptococcus thermophilus and the streptococcus thermophilus actually helps with the synthesis of B9. So it helps with the B9. And then it basically means it's gonna have a, a positive knock-on effect to things like uh, hemoglobin concentrations, even like hemidocrit. Don't fully quote me on this because it's, it's been a while ago. Since I was so trying to like, find that actually. I, I, I didn't find it, but I can't say I looked extensively, um, but it does certainly sound familiar. Well, I remember we talked about that research a while ago. And mm. I actually think I tried to find it. I just like couldn't find that. Um, mm. I couldn't find it. It doesn't. Once again, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Okay, but I just didn't find. It. Uh, I remember us talking about that research. You know, quite a while ago. Um, so you could say, like, you know, even some of these things, like the, you know, goat's kefir and goat's yogurt, because some of the, uh, you know, the beneficial flora that's actually uh, within the dairy. Okay, well, there's always going to be a knock-on effect. So once again, you could do the research on the Streptococcus thermophilus. Even Streptococcus thermophilus has actually helped to, uh, shown to suppress TH17. Once again, I'm not saying TH17 response is the devil. TH17 response actually increases interleukin-17, and then that actually creates more neutrophil recruitment. 
Um, so whether there's some sort of benefit around like, you know, uh, preventing like a, a too much of a buildup of like neutrophils. And once again, your, your own immune system can actually damage the gut lining. Okay. Mm. So you can have too much of a buildup of things like neutrophils, like an overactive immune system, basically. Um, Another one, Dave, um, uh, similar to goats, but different, um, bovines. So like whey, whey isolate, or even yogurt that's high in whey. There's some good literature actually on that on, and hemoglobin as well. I don't know if you've seen that, but there was one study where they used uh, like a, a yogurt that was high in whey isolate. And they found that, um, I think they did it for, they actually had it multiple times a day. They had it with, they did it with athletes. And they found that after it was nine or 10 weeks that hemoglobin levels had increased um, from around 126 to 160, which is a pretty big increase. I, I'm not sure if it's mixed gender, if they're all male athletes, I can't remember now, but that was just from consuming essentially a, a high concentration of whey isolates. Uh, I think it was three times a day. And, and that, and also like, once again, like what you could find, especially with things like, uh, you know, uh, even things like, uh, like maybe like raw milk, um, and even once again, things like, you know, goat's milk and so forth, like there would definitely be stuff around like immunoglobulins, like antibodies as well. Mm. So then you, you, you're finding the, you know, the research around the impact on immunoglobulins and, uh, you know, things like, you know, uh, IgA and IgG and maybe even things like IgM and not sure about like IgE, but obviously like these positive uh, impacts for like immunoglobulins. Okay. Now, does that have some sort of impact on things like globulin levels or, mm. uh, you know, immune markers? Okay. Well, there's, there's obviously a whole heap of uh, hypo like you could hypothesize around a whole heap of things. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to do one more with the dairy stuff. So we've, I've just talked about whey. In fact, I'll, I'll just touch on a way a little bit more because there's a number of studies that have shown lactoferrin um, quite yeah. beneficial in iron status and anemia and hemoglobin, especially in, in women who are pregnant. And we know that whey isolate contains a significant amount of lactoferrin. Now, I'd say I guess... that research is pretty significant as well, yeah, okay? <laughs> like because obviously I, I think it's the same research that you're talking about, okay? um, where they obviously gave, they compared uh, lactoferrin to, to organic iron. and organic uh, yeah. iron supplementation. They actually showed that the lactoferrin in terms of like modulating the iron levels was either the same or uh, better at yeah. actually regulating the iron levels. Now the issue with like inorganic and or, or organic iron supplementation is that a lot of time it can be associated with uh, uh, increasing like uh, acute inflammation and also uh, lead to more pathogen. Uh, complications and now obviously we know the issue around things like biofilm and the polysaccharide matrix now lactoferrin is not going to create those issues yeah uh if anything it's going to have benefits around those complications yeah, yeah. uh because well, i think one of the studies they did speculate that that it, it may have even had a better effect in the iron supplement because it is reducing inflammation well in that study that i'm talking about that's what the, that's what they did conclude they actually concluded yeah. that because it either regulated the same more than not it was better it actually yeah, hemoglobin i think was better uh, and then because it had all these, um, you know, benefits around like pathogens and we know that it binds to LPS, uh, increases the innate immune response. It has a bit of a modulation uh, effect when it comes to your microbiome balance. So sort of balancing out the ratios between your beneficial flora and your opportunistic bacteria, okay, helping your aspects around like fungi and mold and all that type mm. of stuff. So of course, like once again, they didn't really talk about the impact on the immune cells and all that type of stuff within, within that research, but they obviously conclude that the lactoferrin was going to be a better choice because it doesn't mm. have these negative impacts that the uh, inorganic and the the organic uh, iron supplementation mm. potentially can have. So look, there's, there's plenty of options there. Maybe should we do one or two more for hemoglobin? I know we both love pomegranate. Maybe we should touch on that one. Pomegranate, I'd say, though, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but I reckon the research is pretty good around pomegranate. Yeah. Uh, and that applies to, like, a lot of forms of pomegranate, okay? I want to say that. Obviously, you can find stuff on pomegranate husk, okay? Obviously, we're not going to necessarily talk about that one. But you can definitely find stuff on just pomegranate itself. So even just, like, consuming the, the fruit or the seeds. Uh, and you can even find a, a plenty of research around pomegranate juice. Yeah. So if we're just talking about uh, when it comes to, you know, red blood cell count and, hemoglobin concentrations. It was, there was actually research where they actually gave people, it was quite a lot of pomegranate, I will say. 500 that because, mils, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was 500 mils and they did that over the course of like two weeks. And obviously they were drinking 500 mils 
every day. Now, one thing I say is that that's pretty expensive, like pomegranate, pomegranate yeah. juice is not the cheapest uh, thing going around. Uh, and actually this research was done in healthy individuals. Uh, so in the healthy individuals, it was actually shown to increase red blood cell count and hemoglobin concentrations. Um, now, obviously, I would say there's all these other benefits with the, like pomegranate. I don't know if we want to touch on that, but even when they gave uh, pomegranate uh, juice, this was in men and women. They actually showed that it increased salivary testosterone. Now, obviously, there's reports up to about 25% increase. But once again, this was shown in men and women. And that was actually, they, they measured it. Uh, they were taking pomegranate juice um, and they were taking that, they measured it after just one week. That was just after one week. Mm. And then they measured it after two weeks. And there was a significant raise in salivary testosterone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I reckon that's pretty, pretty huge. Now, obviously, you know, there's, there's literature around like, you know, pomegranate uh, juice around like, you know, uh, reducing like PSA levels. Obviously, this is to do with things like uh, uh, prostate cancer. But also just, uh, it, it must have some benefits. I don't know. I'm pretty sure there might be some, something on this. It must have some benefits around even things like prostatitis. Okay, mm. like inflammation of the prostate as well. So, mm. uh, I mean, one thing you've got to be careful with, like pomegranate juice. I mean, you, you do need it to be like just 100% pomegranate pomegranate juice. A lot of time they can obviously mix other things in there. Um, so obviously that was based on just 100% pomegranate juice from my understanding, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think it was, yeah, totally. And, you know, even potentially around asonophils, there might be some benefit to pomegranate. There's, I mean, again, I don't want to go down the, the extract study, but I know they were using a very low-dose pomegranate extract. So you would assume that potentially that would have a benefit around white blood cells too. Well, you can so, always go down all those mechanisms. Once yeah. again, it's just it's, there's all those mechanism sort of like pathways. Totally. Because even when I say to people, well, pomegranates, you know, got some benefits around progesterone. It's not so much as like direct, it's more that pomegranate has actually been shown to increase like bifidobacterium bravae, bifidobacterium, uh, I think it's like infantis, you know, uh, bifidobacterium strains have benefits around progesterone. Does that make yeah. sense? So there's a mechanism thing there, but yeah. you can make those conclusions, but we're just talking about, I can make those conclusions. It doesn't necessarily mean it's directly been shown drinking yeah. pomegranate juice or having pomegranate just creates like an increase in progesterone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit, we've touched on a, f- a few things there. There are There's some pretty interesting studies around beetroot as well. I'll just chuck that in there, but I won't go into detail, but there's some, some good studies there. So that sort of covers those markers. We then move into white blood cells. Now, I'll just start by saying that there's certainly nowhere near as much literature on the white blood cells. I did just touch on pomegranate and eosinophils, um, but if we look at things like neutrophils, lymphocytes, a lot of this stuff, typically they're looking more like supplementation, extracts. Correct. Yeah. Um, so it's a little Powders. bit more difficult. Yeah. Because okay. there's obviously loads of things we could mention here. Yeah. Uh, but then we go, okay, shiitake mushrooms. Well, that's really based on the powder. It is. I mean, there is one study, Dave, I don't know if you've seen it, where they used um, just like button mushrooms. And oh, okay. they it was a I mouse study. Yeah. yeah. But it was, again, it was like some extract type form, but it wasn't like... A, I think it was just like concentrated, yeah, and it, it was equivalent to like two percent of the mouse diet or whatever. Um, and they did, I think they noted noted some change in in lymphocytes, but you know, it's there's really lacking data just on on whole foods when it comes to white blood cells, isn't there? So most of the time, what you're doing is you're just making conclusions. Okay, yeah. and a lot of time they they could be correct. Uh, and so you know, we talk about some like shiitake mushrooms, and we like shiitake mushrooms have LEM. The LEM is actually the compound that actually has the real positive impact on things like, you know, subgroups of your lymphocytes, like CD4 count, CD8 count. Okay? But that was really uh, based on uh, pomegranate powder. And I think they were taking quite a high dosage, weren't they? It was something like, you know, up to you know, 5 grams, up to 10 grams. So it was quite a high dosage. Mm. There is obviously a, a huge positive impact. I'm a, a big fan of like shiitake mushrooms from that perspective. But once again, is that based on you just consuming directly the shiitake mushrooms? Yeah. Um, that's where it gets harder to find that that research. Yeah. You know, once again, even like some like bone marrow, okay, we know that helps with aspects around the, the immune cells, but it's really based on, once again, the compounds that you're getting from within the bone marrow. And you might be able to find some literature on that particular compound, but not necessarily about just consuming bone marrow itself. One, one study we do have here is on dark chocolate. So there was a study where, uh, I forget the sample size here, it would have been a smaller study, but they used 50 grams of dark chocolate, 90% dark chocolate, and they assessed white blood cells um, after consumption. 
And they noted that within four hours, there's actually a significant increase in neutrophils, uh, like something like 0.5 um, in terms of absolute neutrophils increase. And there was a slight increase in lymphocytes. Yeah, for people who don't know, that's quite a substantial increase. Yeah, pretty like significant. Yeah. We were generally saying neutrophils, like, you know, they, in terms of like an increase in neutrophils. It's pretty slow, mostly. Yeah, time. very slow. If we see, yeah, exactly. If if we saw 0.5 over several months, like that's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty so, big. Yeah. yeah. And that's um, even like, that's even like in people who are including things like you know cold immersion and all that type of stuff, which can have yeah. an impact on that. But even cold immersion can be pretty slow when it comes to like neutrophils. Absolutely, well. absolutely. So to see that increase from from 50 grams of dark chocolate is pretty good. And, and like I said, 90% dark chocolate. They actually used several different types of dark chocolate in that study, um, one of which was the lint 90% dark chocolate, which is what I generally use with my clients. Uh, and the study, they did sort of discuss that the impact that would have on neutrophils could potentially have a benefit around immune function and, and protection against um, various pathogens, bacterial pathogens, viral pathogens, um, fungal so that's certainly one interesting study we do have on neutrophils. Um, we are lacking, unfortunately, a lot of, like many other studies. Again, we could talk about sort of what we hypothesize would help, but that's not really where we want to go. Um, I'm not really familiar with any other studies on on white blood cells. Are you familiar with any others, Dave? I mean, I, I, I've tried to look for a lot, but it's just like, if we're just talking about the direct foods, it's, it, it's most of the time it's, it's just based on the compounds within the food. Yeah. So it, it's pretty limited around like immune cells and neutrophils outside of what you, you're talking about with the chocolate. Um, so, and that's quite interesting with the chocolate, isn't it? Because it's not really based on like, you know, 100% dark chocolate. Yeah. Okay. Or yeah. Just like all raw it had okay. sugar in it. Like we're actually looking yeah. at a supplement, a food that has sugar. Yeah. So, and that's one thing we, we've got to mention. It's like, it would be interesting to see what the impact would be. Because even when I talk about things like, one thing I would say where there's a lot of research, and maybe we're going to touch on this, is I would say there's there's a decent amount of research around oily fish, um, which obviously we're a big advocate of. And we don't really want to go down. Can there be some issues around things like, you know, plastic filaments and heavy metals and all that type of stuff when it comes to fish, of course. So uh, I want to acknowledge if I'm going to talk about like mycotoxins and certain types of, you know, uh, small grains and tree nuts, well, there can be some issues around... Uh, you know, heavy metals and all that type of stuff with uh, fish as well. Um, but even when they've done the research on like uh, like uh, the impacts of like oily fish and all that type of stuff, I mean, that's not even done on wild, like things like wild mm. salmon. Okay, a lot of the time it's done on farm salmon, and mm. they're still noticing like these significant benefits. Mm. Mm. Um, even they uh, like it, when it comes to like even reduce. I know CRP, which is C reactive protein. It's a pretty sensitive marker, so that's why it gets a little bit tricky, like just using that as your only sort of like inflammatory marker as an indication of like the impact that the food would have on lowering that. Uh, but I know they had like men and women like over the age of 60 where they gave them something like uh, 720 grams of like oily fish in a week. Uh, and then I think I told you this, it was on top of that was like uh, sardine oil. Uh, and it was like, <laughs> now not everyone's going to, you know, down sardine oil. I'll probably down it, but uh, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. But I think it was like 15 mil of like sardine oil. And that actually did uh, actually show to uh, significantly uh, lower serum uh, CRP levels. Uh, and also, uh, I think they were measuring like interleukin-6. Now, obviously, CRP is signaled by interleukin-6 anyway. Um, and so there was a, uh, uh, a trend in the lowering in the interleukin-6 levels as well. Oily fish um, has definitely been shown to, you know, reduce inflammation. Would that be revolutionary? Probably not. Um, even when they've done like, uh, I think they've done even like testing around oily fish with like children. I think the one study, uh, I actually quoted this the other day, where they had children between the ages of like eight and nine. They gave them something in the realms of like 325 to 426 grams, roughly between that. So it was sort of like a, a, a dose dependent sort of like manner. Um, so anywhere between that uh, amount of grams. So once again, we're not talking about a huge amount, not from my perspective anyway. Mm -hmm. And that was only just like weekly, but that actually in children, this is actually where they were measuring like their lipid markers. And that actually uh, showed to lower uh, serum triglyceride levels and even improve HDL cholesterol as well. Um, so you would act, and there was another, uh, just remember that there was another, I can't remember the direct impact, but they, they did even like testing on like mackerel and, uh, mackerel is another oily fish. I'm a big advocate of mackerel, but that had, um, considerable benefits around like, uh, markers that could be a reflection of like cardiovascular risk. 
Um, so I reckon there's some pretty good literature around like oily fish. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one just in relation to neutrophils again. Um, shark oil, you mentioned sardine oil, so it made me think of it, but shark oil, there's a couple of studies that have shown an increase in neutrophils and lymphocytes with shark oil. I don't know where you would find that, but it's it's one of the few, it's literally like the one of the only studies I've seen on is the it, food. Is there stuff on like, is that, is that like even like shark cartilage? Is that why it's like some people who like consume like shark cartilage? I've only seen it on shark oil, but I don't know, potentially. Anyway, so let's keep going with the lipids then. So you've talked about um, like fatty fish and the effect on on sort of certain lipid markers. Should we talk a little bit more around cholesterol and triglycerides? Yeah, well, I think this is like, because there, there's obviously a lot of foods do tend to get sort of tested around that, the, the lipid markers. Uh, one thing that I want to communicate is that a, a lot of people can have a lot of misconceptions that really are not factual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this definitely applies to the lipid markers. And uh, a lot of foods just get demonized because they do contain like dietary cholesterol. And a lot of time that would be things like shellfish. Uh, and once again, it goes back to what I was talking about, like, you know, things like prawns and shrimp, like even like scallops. Have, but from my understanding, scallops have very, they don't have any impact on the lipid markers at all. Mm. Yeah. But then people perceive because like dietary cholesterol, mm. that this is, this is a problem. Uh, but actually when they, uh, they did testing where they actually gave people like shrimps or, or, or prawns or something like that. Uh, and they actually showed that, um, they significantly lowered the ratio of like total cholesterol to uh, HDL like ratio and even lowered the ratio of LDL to HDL cholesterol. And also on top of that, lowered fasting triglycerides. Why do I think this is really important? Because if you spoke to most people, they would perceive, and let's say they had like an elevation in their lipid markers, they would perceive that some of the worst foods that they could Mm. consume would be things like shellfish, Mm. where actually based on the literature, you would actually say it's going to have a positive, it'd be beneficial. I just think that's like so important for people to understand that a lot of people's beliefs can be based on social conditioning and, 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 and actually just based on a a complete misconception. Yeah. Uh, that's not the reality. And actually I would say for those people, well, there's potentially going to be some benefits there. What other foods would be beneficial with lipids? I mean, an easy one, garlic, we should talk about garlic, I think, because you've yeah, just yeah. talked about lipid skewing, HDL, LDL. So garlic, I forget how much. It was like a clove a day or something like that was shown. It's hardly anything. Okay. Yeah. Well, even like, like you know, I mean, you would say there's going to be, there has to be like a, you know, uh, a benefit, you know, benefit around like, you know, clotting issues and all that type yeah. of stuff. So maybe it's going to have some, I, I don't know if there's literature on this, but you would think maybe there could be some literature on platelets, maybe. Mm. Uh, but you would think there, there, there's going to be some cardiovascular benefits here. And, and once again, wasn't the whole thing like like blood thinning? Wasn't that just based on like, once again, just like one clove of garlic? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the studies, that tends to be about how much you're using. And I think there was like a 10% reduction in total cholesterol, having just one clove of garlic a day. And uh, again, a, a improving of the HDL, LDL. I'm not sure about triglycerides, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, a significant impact on triglycerides and even homocysteine as well. So aged garlic, not aged garlic, just garlic itself would be a, an easy addition there as well. Anything else from a lipids perspective you want to touch on? I mean, I, I know that I know that's probably well. Once again, I, I did mention the scallops. You can actually there's a, there's some literature uh, where they actually did sort of like a scallop cod sort of combo, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, they actually found that that actually had benefits around like the lipid markers. Okay, once again, sort of like you know uh, breaking down a lot of those misconceptions. Yeah, I think I think we might have like you know mentioned some of the more significant ones. Uh, maybe there's something we've forgotten. You go, but uh, I think that would be some of the more significant ones. I mean, do we just want to like maybe touch on like uh, maybe liver enzymes? Yeah, let's touch on some liver enzymes quickly. So, and maybe Billy Rubin, if there's any there. Yep. Um, and these are going to be a little bit linked in some ways to lipid markers as well. Um, you know, obviously, if there's more metabolic issues, you're likely to see both of these elevated. So. Liver enzymes, what it, I mean, there's a couple of obvious ones. Yeah. Actually carrots. Um, so I've just, I've just jogged my memory around like, uh, benefits around like, uh, uh, white blood cells, carrots. Mm-hmm. Okay. They actually, uh, they actually did this, uh, research on, uh, carrot juice, uh, but they were doing it in smokers and they actually showed yeah. that the carrot, the carrot juice actually had benefits around, um, 
mitigating like damage to uh, what they call it, like uh, lymphocyte DNA, basically. Uh -huh. uh, now, whether that is actually improving the lymphocyte, or obviously it, it would have to be improving the lymphocytes to some extent. Um, but yeah, carrots. Okay, I'm, I'm actually quite a big fan of carrot. I, I mean, obviously it's got the better carotene, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm not talking about the better carotene from the pro vitamin A perspective. No. Okay, I'm just talking about the better carotene itself. Uh, mm -hmm. Even like uh, purple carrots, uh, they've done like purple carrot juice or supplementation, uh, and that's got some benefits around uh, even things like CRP. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm pretty sure like beta carotene is pretty good at like mitigating like interleukin six. So yeah, so liver enzymes. So you know one that people probably are more aware of, I guess here would be things like artichoke, milk thistle tea, radishes. Radish. Well, radish people may not be as familiar with. You know that's probably not spoken about as much. Yeah, well, true, true. Um, but there's definitely some good literature around uh, artichoke reducing AST and ALT, and and yeah, do you want to touch on the literature with? Uh, is it just radish juice or is the stuff on? Well, yeah, this is the thing. So when it, I would say it is more radish juice, uh, but I, I think they did like, there, there is stuff on like the seeds and the roots as well. Okay. Like, but if we're talking about like the impact on the uh, elevation in the serum, like AST and ALT and ALP, and then actually the total bilirubin, that was based on radish juice. Now we've sort of spoken about this. I mean, it's not the most like, you know, how many people are going to, consume radish juice. Mm. I mean, I would do it, but not a lot of people are going to do that. But I know they've actually, um, so I would say that the seeds and the roots must have a similar benefit, okay? because I think they did testing. Once again, I know it was rats, uh, but they, it was actually done on rats where they had like paracetamol and Panadol uh, damage to the liver. And actually the seeds and the roots were actually found to help with that. Uh, also um, excess amounts of bilirubin. Radish is really good around that. That's why I do tend to, you know, really promote people having that when there is um, some issues around like bilirubin. Uh, so any issues around like, you know, the gallbladder and, you know, gallbladder infections, gallstones. I mean, I, I would say radish juice and radishes got to have some benefits around that. Any of these bitter foods ultimately are going to help in that instance if we're talking like more conjugated bilirubin being elevated. Yeah, yeah, yeah so sure. um, unfortunately, I don't think there's any studies in Rocket. But that would be another food that I, I would normally recommend. Yeah, and that's one that we've sort of like recommended around like, you know, even exposure to like, you know, mycotoxins and mold and all that type of stuff, you know, things like, you know, rocket and even things like the, those weedy greens like watercress and endive and all that type of stuff. I don't know, like I, I haven't directly tried to look at a lot of the impacts of those uh, sort of like uh, weedy greens around like... Uh, uh, liver enzymes and all that type mm. of stuff because obviously mm. like you know mycotoxins and mold uh, you know uh, i sort of mentioned it before okay really has a huge negative impact on your liver enzymes and a huge negative impact on your your, your blood markers and your, and your biomarkers mm. um is there any is, was anything else like have you, have you come across anything like directly with like i mean i know there is literature there but i just can't remember some of the research around artichokes like globe, globe artichokes yeah oh uh, yeah there's definitely artichoke with ast and alt I know that. Yeah. I forget how much they were consuming, but yeah, definitely a, a decrease in elevated AC and ALT. I would expect that there'd probably be a knock-on effect of bilirubin as well. I just can't remember if they tested that in the studies or not, um, but that's definitely one that seems fairly well documented. Ginger, is there anything with ginger? There's obviously, like, I'm sure there'd be stuff with ESR and CRP, surely. Yeah, but I, that's where it comes down to a lot of the time it is ginger supplementation. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they'll use powder, but I guess it's still... Like, because it often will just be like powdered ginger. But, exactly right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But when I'm talking about like the actual consumption of like, you know, ginger, I'm sure there is some yeah. literature, but most of the time it's just based on the powder. Yeah. But like, we're not even talking extract there. So you would imagine powdered gingers. Uh, but then we go start going down the path. I mean, we could mention cinnamon, couldn't we? Yeah. More around glucose or? Yeah, just around glucose. I mean, like, there's, there's, there's definitely literature around that. Um, obviously, improving like glucose tolerance and, uh, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's some stuff around fasting glucose there and uh, yeah, improving like insulin sensitivity. And uh, yeah. so you can definitely, but once again, do we include it? I mean, we sh I mean, you're, you're only really going to have it in the powder for powder. Yeah, powder anyway. I can't remember <laughs> the last time I ate a cinnamon stick. So. <laughs> so maybe like, I mean, we start going down like that path. Yeah. Then you could start going, well, there's shiitake mushroom powder and then we start going down. Uh, look, I'm sure there's probably things that we forgot, but uh... part, part two is powders. What powders will help your blood market? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's there's going to be like ten parts to that one. <laughs> but I think like in another part, we're just we're probably going to cover foods that probably have some of the 
the more negative impacts on your uh, biomarkers. Mm, okay? That's mm. probably going to be another part and probably a conversation for another time, yeah? I wonder if, um, is there anything with like water, like high silica water reducing kidney markers, creatinine, have you seen anything like that? or? Well, obviously you've talked about silica around like, uh, like metals, uh, heavy metals, like aluminium chloride and aluminium chloride definitely has a negative impact on uh, liver enzymes. And like it, it, it raises like AST, ALT, ALP, so it's pretty negative around that. I just don't, I don't know if they've, they've looked at the blood markers in those tests, so. <laughs> yeah. Should have, yeah, so. should have done my homework before we started recording this. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we yeah. should probably conclude. Um, yep. I mean, we covered a few different foods. Hopefully that gives you guys. I'm some sure food. there's something we've forgotten, but like I just, once again, guys, I'm sure people are going to listen to it and go, what about that food? What about that food? Okay. But like we've just tried to cover it directly consuming that food, yep. the impact that it has on your biomarkers, blood markers. We're not, once again, we get it. You can look at that food. It's got that compound. There's loads of research on that compound. It's just not the angle that we were coming uh, at from in this particular podcast. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it might be like one obscure study, like eggs. I know there's, I think there's one study that showed an in, a, like benefit to some lipid markers. And then there's, there's some that have shown no benefit. And like, you know, we don't want to mention stuff that's like, that's not consistent with the rest of the literature. So, you know, there's obviously some, some studies that will show some things, but you know, that's the limitation, I guess, of what we've got is this often just not enough studies on it. Yeah. Anyway, I, mean, I mean, I could have talked about loads of, you know, even things like macadamia nuts and macadamia oil and all that type of stuff, but then it's yeah. based on the compounds, like yeah. the omega seven in it. Yeah. Conversation for another time. Well, thank you guys. Thank you guys for tuning in as always. And hopefully you'll join us for our next podcast. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.